All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a special guest, Robert Farrington. Um, Rob is uh, the founder of the collegeinvestor.com. Uh, um, he founded this site in 2009 while he was still in grad school to share his common sense student loan and investing strategies with other millennials. At work and school, he heard some pretty scary financial advice and he wasn't okay with that. With the college investor, he wanted to be as transparent and as helpful as possible. The number one dilemma holding millennials back from investing in building real wealth is student loan debt, according to Rob. And it was a struggle uh, for him for a while as well. And it was from this challenge that led him to write his first ebook, Student Loan Debt, Getting In Smart, Getting Out Painlessly. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So obviously this is a you know, pretty pressing issue um, you know, in society today uh, in terms of student loan debt. And I'm curious, I guess, you know, what, uh, maybe you could just kind of walk me through what, what led you down the path of, of saying, all right, here's, this is a problem and I'm going to put in the effort and, and start a company to try to fix this. Yeah, definitely. Well, I didn't start this way. Uh, as you kind of mentioned in my intro, I started the college investor because I wanted to really talk about investing and building wealth topics. Um, kind of my background, I've always been entrepreneurial. Uh, I was selling candy bars out of my backpack in middle school. I was flipping things on eBay in high school. And I took all that extra money and I was investing in the stock market. And that was my goal with the college investor, right? To share tips so that college students can start investing. Well, uh, when I graduated, I had $43,000 in student loan debt. And after about six months or so, my loan servicer stopped applying my payments the right way. And they tried to say I was late on my student loan payments. When I wasn't, it was all set up for auto pay. So I wrote about it on my site, right? And I wrote my whole saga and battle and what happened. And oh man, it blew up. All these people were like, me too. My loan servicer messes things up too. I'm struggling with my student loans. And it, it was a very big light bulb moment for me in terms of, wow, like uh, there, there's this big issue out here that I just stumbled upon myself with my own experience that is really impacting a lot of people. And as I researched and dove in more and you know, really started understanding the situation, some of my friends were like, yeah, man, we, we like to invest and we want to build wealth. But like, dude, I have all the student loan debt and my monthly payments on this are eating up my whole budget. And, you know, it's so hard. I don't even know what to do. And, and so between all these kind of, you know, converging events, I, I really started to refine my mission to help people get out of student loan debt as fast as possible so that we can get to the stuff I really want to talk about, which is investing and building wealth. Right, right. I guess you got to take care of uh, what's holding you back first before you can get to that step. Um, exactly. So, so what, uh, I guess maybe start with like some, some practical, like what, what are some of the biggest like misconceptions? Like what, what do people not understand about um, taking on loans? Cause it's, it's something that, you know, I remember kind of, you know, in the process of, of applying, uh, you know, while I was in, I guess, ending high school or starting college, um, you know, they make you do whatever FAFSA, like the brief kind of, you know, educational thing, but it's kind of confusing. And I, it, it seems like a lot of people just go into it with, 
really a minimal understanding of subsidized versus unsubsidized. Like, can you break it all down. Yeah, for me? What? your your face tells it all right now because most people go into it with no clue. I, I remember my situation vividly. I got this email from the financial aid office that said, like, you know, this was like in March or April, like after you got in, and they're like, congratulations your award right and then you click the link you go to the website you log in and then it's like you check a couple boxes you scroll down no one reads terms and conditions right because we're all trained at this point in time that we just skip that you hit i accept and boom you have student loans and nobody thinks twice about it and and that's part one of the scariness right uh no one educates you we have a lack of financial literacy education in america um, most people learn through experience, but experience also tells us that most homes in America, you know, are, you know, really struggling financially, don't have emergency funds, don't understand how debt works, things like that. So that's part one. And then part two is that student loans themselves are extremely convoluted and challenging with understanding the options. So uh, I've matrixed everything out with student loans and there are over 150 different possible combinations of ways to like deal with your student loan debt, right? And that's in terms of repayment plans and loan forgiveness options based on your loan type, like you said, subsidized, unsubsidized, Perkins, direct, FFE, like it just goes on and on and on. And so there's a lot of analysis paralysis. There's a lot of not understanding what you have when you're done. And no one really makes it easy for people when they graduate. So with that being said, step one that I urge everybody to do is just get organized. And it sounds really crazy, but you know, most people graduate with five student loans. And you think about it, right? It's freshman, junior, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year, maybe a summer semester or fifth year, right? And this is just for undergraduate education, not even talking about grad school, right? Which then you add in other loan options of grad plus loans and <laughs> things right so you know get organized you need to go find all your loans you need to update all your information right because none of us live where we live freshman year of college it's just a fact you might have lived at home with your parents you might have lived in a dorm room you might have had an apartment you might have moved like four times since you were a freshman so is your loan information accurate can you get your bill every month is your email address updated? Can't tell you how many people sign up with their school email address. And then literally, what, six months after graduation, your school shuts off your email address. And then, oh, suddenly you don't get your statements anymore. And so it's like things like this. You got to go find your loans, get organized, lay them all out. Whatever tool works for you, if you're a pen and paper kind of person, if you're a spreadsheet person, if you like a, an app to keep track of your money, figure out your style, lay it all out, get organized, and then we can start talking about all the different options and levers you can pull. But if you don't know what you got, it's really hard to, you know, figure out where to go. Right, right. You know, before we get into kind of, I guess, more kind of the remedies of the situation, you know, I'm curious, <laughs> I'm curious to hear your thoughts just on the, you know, I, I'm thinking back, like I have, a, I have a family friend who would always tell me like when I was in the process of applying to colleges to think about like the, the ROI, the return on investment, <sighs> right? And I would, you know, I brought this up because, you know, you being a business guy, I wanted to hear your perspective on, do you feel that, you know, is college, and I, I would assume it probably differs, you know, case by case, but do you feel that that college is usually a good investment or grad school like or or are we kind of being duped out of 
our money or is it somewhere in between? So in general, yes. The, the studies, the statistics, everything says that college and getting a college degree is worth it. <laughs> the question is, is, is borrowing a lot of money to pay for that worth it, right? So like if you want to look at household net worth, household income studies, you want to go dive into the science, a college degree will earn you millions of dollars or at least $1 million more than not having a college degree over the course of your lifetime. That's statistically proven to, you know, 2018, basically. Um, but, you know, the question is, is, is it worth it for everybody? And is it worth it if you borrow? And so an interesting study came out from the Federal Reserve just this summer, and it was the 2019 Household Net Worth Survey. And so it asks you, is college worth it? And it kind of breaks it down in different terms. And so college is worth it for two groups of people. The people that spend a fortune on college, so I'm talking people that spend $100,000 plus on college, it's worth it because those people are typically doctors, lawyers, going into high net worth positions. And as a result, they are spending a fortune, but their income and in turn, typically their net worth will reflect that. The other group of people that college makes a huge benefit for is those that spend less than $30,000 in total on college. And those are people that are typically going to advance themselves as one. If you look at the price tag, it's very low. So if you only spent 30,000 bucks and you're going to earn a million dollars more over your lifetime, boom, that's a great outcome, right? And these are also people that are going to community college, sticking to state schools. They're probably living at home or house hacking in, in terms of the keeping their living expenses down. And so they're making their college ROI much better. The people that fared the worst and have actually seen a decline in the ROI of college over the last decade is that middle pack. People that spend between thirty dollars and $100,000 on college are seeing a decline in the value of college. And it's such a drastic decline that it's actually made the total ROI of college go down over the last few years. Isn't that crazy? Like when you think about it, and now granted, there is a huge ROI still going to college, but like it is actually going down. So when you hear these online entrepreneurs talking about just go start a business, right? Well, maybe, but college is still worth it for a lot of people. I think we have a big psychological problem in America with college is that we created this culture where everyone needs to go to college. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think college is the right fit for a lot of people. But I also think going into trade school could be a great fit for a lot of people. The trouble is, is over the last decade or two, we've stopped exposing our youth to other alternatives, right? So like most high schools in the country canceled woodshop. They canceled tech and they replaced them all with like computer um, courses, things, which granted we're in an economy that values that skill set. But, you know, using your hands, going out and working, if kids aren't exposed to it, they don't know that that could be an option for you. And I always think of like my father-in-law, my father-in-law used to be a lineman for the electric company right? Like total grunt work, you know, climbing telephone poles and electric poles and doing that. Guy cleared over $200,000 a year doing this work. <laughs> and so it's like, there are really good paying jobs for people, but unless you're exposed to it, 
You don't know those jobs exist. So is college worth it? Yes. Part two of that is don't borrow a lot to pay for college. So debt will destroy your ROI just like it does anywhere else. So I like to think of college as an investment, right? If you're going to buy a house, right? If you pay too much and you get a big mortgage, well, look what happened in 2007, 2008. Everyone lost their houses. They became overextended, things like that. Same is true with your college degree. If you overpay and you borrow too much and then you go into a career field that doesn't justify that earning, well, or that servicing that debt, you're going to struggle. And that's really the story of the student loan debt crisis today is people saw a negative ROI on their education spending for whatever the reason is, you know, and you can blame it on a whole, you know, slew of socioeconomic factors. They paid too much for college, the for-profit, student loan debt, higher tuition prices, stagnant wage growth, like <laughs> the list goes on and on and on about why, but that's the underlying story is people did not get an ROI on what they paid for and they're very frustrated and struggling financially as a result. So don't do that. <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to a friend the other day, having a conversation just about like the, the way the school system is set up, you know, how, how, you know, people are often, at least what I was exposed to, no one really took a gap year. I mean, I, I went to, you know, a, a very good high school in my town and it was just kind of college was just how sort of going from, you know, middle school into high school, it was just high school into it was like not a question of, am I going to college? It was where, where am I going, you know, for college? And, you know, just talking with a friend about kind of different countries, um, you know, different parts of the world have different, different systems. Like he had brought up, um, we were talking about, you know, in Israel, how they, you know, uh, students, they graduate high school and then there's a mandatory military service. And then when they got back from the military, they often work for a few years and then go to college, like when they're 26, 27. I, I was just 100%. curious, what's, what's your take on, like, like, do you in, encourage people to like, like take, you know, sort of a, a, a gap year or gap years to kind of like figure out and get exposed to these different, like we were talking about getting exposed to these different trades or. 100%. So I, I'm a fan of the gap year, but it doesn't have to be like a traditional gap year where you go and travel the world. You know, some countries do that. Israel does military service. They do a lot of traveling too. the UK, Australia. I want to say like Australia, something like 90% of high school students spend at least a year abroad before they go to college. Like, and that's crazy. Um, I, I like it. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think that's for everybody. I do think that college is too expensive to find yourself. And I also think that the value of college for education's sake is too high. If you want to get educated, you can get educated from the best professors, the best classes. You can learn everything you could want to learn on the internet for free, basically, these days. We're not going to college to learn. We're going to college because it's a social signal to a future employer that we have a whole basket of skill sets. One of them is the knowledge, but the other basket of skill sets is like, yes, I could do the work to pass the classes, which means I typically wrote a paper or in grad school, I could, I could write a dissertation and I had an advisor that like vouched for me. Like it's a social signal is what college really is today. And so the question is, is what are you trying to social signal for? Do you want to go into a career path that requires it? And then how can you get there for the most cost-effective way? 
The trouble is, is we're asking 17 year olds and 18 year olds to make these decisions. And that's where I think the value in getting more experience lies, whether that's travel, whether that's getting an internship, whether that's going out and just working, whether that's, you know, a variety of things. And it doesn't mean you don't have to do any school. Like maybe it means that you go to your local community college and you knock out a class or two every quarter while you're working in something that you think you want to do, you know, bottom level, maybe you want to go into marketing, right? Bottom level floor intern at the marketing company. And I'm still taking a couple community college classes to move the ball in the goal that I go back and, and get college. Uh, maybe you discover you hate it though. And then on the flip side, you can quit and you're still making progress on your, you know, 101 courses that, you know, are the same, whether you go to Cornell or you go to your community college, like English 101 is reading these like seven books and writing a paper. <laughs> it doesn't make a difference where you do it. And then plus, you know, we're recording this in a pandemic. I, most of them are online anyways. So the question is, you're reading the books from your house, whether you're doing Cornell or you're doing your community college. So I'm a huge fan of a gap year. I'm even more of a proponent right now because I think anyone that went to college and is living on a dorm right now is very foolish in terms of how they're spending their money. You know, a lot of these kids today are undergraduates, freshmen, sophomore. They're getting like house arrested in their dorm because of the pandemic. So it's like literally you're paying 30000 extra for room and board to be trapped in a dorm room with like a security guard because you can't go anywhere and you're just doing online school from your laptop. Like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting so much money? And I'll tell you in general, when we're talking about ROI of college, it's typically not the tuition that gets people in trouble. In fact, I've, I've never in 10 years of helping people with it, seen it being just tuition that gets people in trouble. The cost at college is always the room and board a hundred percent of the time, you know, tuition at even like really expensive schools is like, if you look at the line items, like $20,000 a year, it's like the room and board that adds another 30 or 40 on top of it times, then he times it by four years, right? So that's also something that you really need to keep in mind in terms of is college worth it or not. How about, I wanted to go back to something you had said uh, just previously about, you know, kind of employers, you know, a college degree or, or you know, further, uh, you know, graduate degrees could signal, you know, that a, a job uh, candidate is going to be, you know, going to be able to do a good job. Do you, do you see that? Cause like also with what you were talking about with how, you know, you can basically learn anything online. Um, you see employers starting to, to value the college degree less. Like do you see that, is that going to start happening or is it already happening or is that it's, always it's been happening over the last five to seven years and i want to say this pandemic has accelerated it so especially in the corporate world um i'll tell you that like you know some employers had these random you know must have a bachelor's degree all this kind of stuff that's going out the window very quickly and in tech man, tech has like propelled the ball. Like nobody cares where you went to school. They all care if you can do the work, which is really what it's always actually been about. If we want to talk about it, like people hire you to do a job. And if you can do the job well, great. You usually get promoted or rewarded better with salary. And so I'll share the story of my cousin. My cousin graduated a few years ago and he's a computer science engineer. And he struggled for the first couple of years to get a great job. And I, I'll tell you that it likely had to do with his social and interview skills. 
he is a genius when it comes to coding. But, you know, I think in the interpersonal stuff, which I feel like too many employers value that a lot and put more weight on that than the skill set. Well, recently in, in the pandemic, he went to one of the largest tech firms, does really technical stuff and applied. And they brought him into the interview and he was telling me the story. He's like, literally it was two guys across a, like a huge room conference table. And they're like, hey, are you so-and-so? Yes. Great. Do you see this equation on the board? And he's like, or equations, you know, thing. And he's like, yeah. He's like, can you solve that for us? Takes a whiteboard, goes up, does it. Guys look at him and they're like, you're going to have a job offer in your email when you're done. Thank you so much. We look forward to working for you. And he's like, he was in there for 15 minutes. It was the weirdest experience he said he's ever had, but he got an amazing job with an amazing salary because he could do the work that the company required of him. And I think that says a lot for, and granted, we're talking about someone that's in a specialty field, but I think you are seeing things tilt much, much more in towards the value of the work. I'll also tell you that the value of a college degree is the craziest depreciating asset that anyone could ever buy. Because here's the thing, is that the value of your degree, even if you go to the most prestigious school in the world, I don't know, we can say the, the Ivy Leagues, Harvard, Cornell, wherever, right? It's only worth it to any employer for 12 to 18 months maximum. If you don't land a job in that 12 to 18 months with your degree, it becomes a toxic thing that will haunt you for the rest of your life. Because here's the thing, is after your first entry level job, first period of time, no employer is going to ever care where you go to school. They're going to care about what you did at your current job, what can you do at your next job, what your skill set is, yada, yada, yada. But if you fail to get a job in that first 18 months, they're going to look at you and be like, you went to an Ivy League school and you haven't landed any kind of employment in 18 months. What's wrong with you? We don't necessarily want to touch this person. And now it's going to haunt you. And so it is crazy how fast that value just drops. you got six months and it's like worth it. And then it's like a year and you're really pushing it. 18 months, the value of that paper is gone. Wow. That's crazy to think about. <laughs> Um, so let's transition a little bit. So kind of talking about maybe, you know, post-college or if, if someone doesn't go to college, um, I saw, I saw on your bio, uh, you're talking about passive income. That's been a, a particular topic that's been interesting for me lately. Can you just kind of, uh, elaborate on that and kind of, uh, talk about like how to best utilize that? Yeah. So, I mean, passive income is the idea that you put money in an asset and it just, generates cash for you. In the most simplest form, we have a 401k or, or some type of retirement plan. You have this basket of stocks, it generates some income for you and you're gonna retire off that hopefully someday, right? And, and that's a simple form. But I think it goes back a step further is that when you're young, there's really, let's just even go back a step further. There's four asset classes really that we all need to think about in this world. You're an asset and typically when you're young, you are the primary driver of your income and your wealth right? It's your working and your hustling and whatever you're doing that's going to generate cash flow. And the goal is let's put this in the other buckets. Okay. The other buckets are typically self-employment, real estate, and paper assets, right? And so a lot of us, we do the 401k. So we're taking cash flow that we're earning by like our labor 
and we're going to drop it in the bucket for investments, paper assets. And that's going to hopefully grow for us passively because once it's in that bucket and once it's in the stock market and index fund, it's just going to grow and reinvest the dividends and whatnot. And then you're never having to put more labor into that bucket again, but that income is going to hopefully be enough for you in the future that you can take the you and turn that dial down to zero and not have to earn it. And so that's the premise of passive income. And that's what we should all be working for. And there's, like I said, there's a variety of buckets you can put it in. Uh, Paper assets, real estate are the two most popular ones. Self-employment, small business is another one. Um, Ideally, you build your business and then kind of build yourself out of your business so that it generates income for you as well. Tell me about uh, kind of with the small business or like an entrepreneur what sort of advice do you have? Because I know like, you know, a lot of people are, are working, you know, they're still working their nine to five and they're kind of using that, um, you know, along with maybe a side hustle uh, to kind of build up, you know, to, to kind of grow their own thing in the future. And I was just, I, I wanted to hear your perspective on, on kind of, I guess, like time management and, and wealth management in terms of someone, someone that's looking to, to, to you know, get to that sort of entrepreneurial space, but they don't have the the money to just quit their nine to five and, and don't. And I say don't do it. You know, the best thing you do, I always like to think of it too, is that, you know, the how you save money and how you invest and how you build wealth is you take the the difference between what you earn and what you spend and you save that money or invest that money, right? And so the goal is is how can you increase that gap between what you earn and what you spend. Well, you can budget, right? And you can cut your lattes. And I'm sure you've seen some headline where he's like, don't buy lattes. It's going to, you know, bankrupt you in the future by spending $5 on a coffee. You know, in a way, I get it. But like, there is only so much you can cut out of your monthly expenses, right? We still got to live somewhere. We still got to drive to get to work or take transportation somewhere, right? We still got to eat, Okay, like there's like fixed expenses that you're never getting out of. Even if you like house hack and like live on a couch, you're still paying a couple hundred bucks to that person for living on their couch. Like you're not getting out of these expenses. You can minimize them a ton, but they're there. But the earn more side is almost limitless. So you have your day job, but what if you went out and drove for a ride sharing company or delivered Postmates or DoorDash or whatnot, and you could put extra money in your paycheck or in your bank account every single month, that's the key to wealth. So that's my story too. And I love it. This is what I'm super passionate about. So, you know, I said I had $43,000 in student loans and I paid them off in about three years. And I did it by working my full-time job and side hustling. And at the time, my main side hustle was flipping stuff on eBay. And I was doing that to the tune of about 2000 bucks a month. And I was doing it by every Saturday and Sunday. And sometimes on Thursdays and Fridays, if I had time going to garage sales and estate sales, and then I'd go home and I'd list them on eBay. And then, you know, I'd sell it and pack it and ship it. And every day on my way to work, I was hitting the post office and dropping it off and mailing stuff out. And you know what, between working full time and the extra income, I was able to knock out my debt. But then I didn't stop there. I kept it up. And then I was able to buy a house, get totally debt free car, all that stuff's gone, and really start achieving your financial goals. Because it really starts to snowball the more you do it. And you build a habit. 
and you start really learning the time management. But I will tell you, it's so much easier when you're younger. Like, what are you doing with your day? Like, you're getting up, maybe seven or eight o'clock, you're getting to work, maybe you're working online these days, right? So like, you're literally, instead of a commute time, you're like rolling over to your, you know, your desk and like, you're doing that until 4.30, but come on, we're all working at home right now, so are you really doing that? And then like, are you just flipping on the TV and watching Netflix and spending money on cable? So that's an example of something that's just costing you money. You're not using your time effectively. Your time's actually costing you more than it would be. Like imagine if you didn't pay for cable and Netflix and instead of that afternoon when you were done with work, you went and delivered for DoorDash. And it's like, I'm going to hear it or you're going to hear it in your comments on this. Oh, but like, you know, you don't make any money delivering for DoorDash. Like, you know, you have to do your own expenses and I'll make $50. And it's like, but here you are. You don't have to get a job. You literally download an app on your phone. You do it 100% on your own terms when you want to. No boss is telling you you got to be here. And you made $50 when you actually would have been spending, you know, $10 just watching cable and Netflix and probably ordering from DoorDash at home instead, right? So it's like, add that $50 into your daily budget and you do that five times a week. You make, that's a thousand bucks a month extra. That's huge. And it's so doable. And I'll share it. We're in the pandemic. So delivery right now is huge. And there's a lot of people crushing it right now doing it. I have a, one of my moderators of my Facebook group has been doing DoorDash and Postmates and averages $46 an hour in a Midwest town. And he does it every day from about four to seven or eight o'clock at night. Um, and he makes a couple hundred dollars a night. So he does it just in dinner time, right? But he's like, the demand is so huge right now because of the pandemic that like, it's just amazing potential to earn. And granted, it's going to vary where you live and all this stuff. But like, when else in history could you literally download an app on your phone and just apply for something and then just go do it and get paid for it? It's just crazy to me. So it's like, there's so many ways. And like the ways to make money is just limitless. If that's not for you, like my sister-in-law does Etsy. She does watch TV at night, but while she's doing it, she has amazing like handwriting and crafting. So she makes wedding and birthday invitations and sells them on Etsy. And she gets the card stock at like a stationery store and then, you know, handwrites it with like calligraphy and stuff, but she does it while watching her shows. So it's like, you could do both. She's making money and watching her shows. I don't know. The list goes on and on and on. No, no. I, I love that you bring this stuff up. It you know, when I was, I was living in Seattle a couple of years ago and, you know, I was working a full-time job, but I was also doing Uber as a side hustle. And, you know, on a, on a, it's just interesting to think about that because I would always think, you know, okay, you know, it's a weekend, you know, night, I can either go out, you know, with my friends to a few bars and probably spend 50 bucks and, you know, like, whatever, and then feel yeah. crappy the next day, <laughs> or, or I can hustle, you know, and make 200, 250 bucks, 250 bucks in a night. And to me, it was, it was usually a no brainer. Exactly. And you know what, like, it also is really scary to me it was like, when you see like the studies out there that say like the average American or like seven in 10 American families can't afford a $400 emergency, right? And it's like, if that's the make or break point for most families, like 400, 500 bucks, it's like, you know it. If you literally go out and drive for Uber or, you know, deliver food like four or five times a month, you could cover that gap. Now, 
it's also a choice of values, right? Some people don't value like that extra work and stuff. But then I also feel like, what are you doing with your time? Like you can't have both, right? Like you gotta like make a choice here. Like you said, either you get to go out and spend and have fun or you go out and be entrepreneurial and hustle and make some money. Right. And then hopefully set yourself up for a lot of fun in the future. Hopefully like, you know, in your thirties, I mean, I, do you, do you view it that way? Like if, you know, if you kind of take on, you know, I guess first, first step might be kind of knocking out the debt, you know, as, as you did with the side hustles, but then also kind of building, building more money, investing, you know, maybe starting a business and then kind of setting yourself up. I, I hear a lot and, you know, watch videos and see, see things written online about kind of like, you know, hustle, spend your twenties hustling and then your thirties, not necessarily saying that you're going to just spend it on a private island the whole the whole time, but you know you'll at least you know get to have have some fun. Absolutely. Well, here's the thing: is it, I'm a big fan of financial balance too. So, like, you know what? If you're making this extra money and you're you're paying off your debt and maybe you're putting a bunch extra to it, well, reward yourself too. Like, one, try to invest while you're paying down your debt, but two, you know, like you've earned it. Like, you know what? maybe you drive for delivery or ride share three weekends a month and you go out with your friends on that last Saturday night or whatever, right? Like it doesn't have to be so all or nothing, right? We can do both things, but we do have to think about it strategically and what you want to do. I'm a huge fan of the, you know, front, I call it front loading your life. Um, and the sooner you can do it, the better. And everyone's listening to this at a different place in their life. But traditionally, uh, you know, it's so much easier to do it when you're in your 20s because you don't have kids. You might not have a significant other. You typically have more energy. You know, you're healthier. All these factors. And like I said, it doesn't apply to everybody. And it's not doesn't mean just because you have kids, you can't do this. But like when it comes to finding the time to do the work, when you don't have these other things going on in your life, it's typically easier to devote four hours a day to driving or being entrepreneurial and whatever shape that looks like for you. So I'm a huge believer in it. And then, you know, if you can keep your costs low through your 20s, like live like a college student until you're 30 and you're really focused on boosting your income, dude, you could be financially set for life. I mean, that's exactly what happened to myself, my wife. We worked as a team. We eliminated our debts, bought our house, you know, paid off our mortgage for that. Like basically financially independent by the time we turn 32 and don't have to work a day in my life again if I don't want to. I do it because I love it. I also find joy in being entrepreneurial. I find joy in helping people with this stuff. But it's definitely work optional now versus like I need to go find a job to survive. And I, I think it's really key. And you'll, everyone I've spoken to, you get so much more joy even in a job that, you know, maybe you were not so happy about before. But I don't know if you ever heard the term F you money. Yeah. Like it's one of my favorite things, right? Like if you save up enough where it's like, if the boss just tells you something that like you just don't care about, well, like, you're in such a more powerful position as a human being that you can just have your FU money and walk away. But even if you choose not to, you literally have a different confidence about yourself and self-worth. And it goes a long way to just propelling yourself forward as well. Right. Let's, let's go back a little bit. Um, so say someone is, you know, they're maybe working a full-time job, side hustling, um, and they've, you know, they've got this extra money coming in. Should they just be putting it 
in their bank account or should they be investing it in some way? And if so, so what way? Both. So one, you should always have an emergency fund. Um, and this is what we talk about with a savings account. You should have cash in a savings account that you could literally go and pull out of an ATM machine or write a check for. And the reason for this is stuff happens. You know, your car breaks down, you have an unexpected medical bill. Like, I don't know, you need a roof repair. Like weird stuff just happens in our lives and it costs money and you need to be able to pay for it. So like get an emergency fund and you know, there's different levels of how much emergency funds you have. I'm a big believer on like the nine month range. Like I'm farther out than anybody. And I think the pandemic has really kind of shown people that you really need to save to take care of yourself. But start with like a thousand bucks. Like don't think you need to get crazy and then build from there. And then you should be investing. And I'm a big believer in first off, taking advantage of any free money that comes your way. And what I mean by this are things like a 401k match, right? So if you work at a company, typically they'll have a 401k and they'll say something like, if you contribute 5%, we'll give you a 5% matching contribution. That's free money. So you put your money in and they give you a 5% bonus just for contributing your 401k. Like do not pass that up. That is a, you double your money overnight and there's no investment in the world that lets you do that. So it's a phenomenal way to do it. There's also free money in things like a health savings account. A lot of um, larger employers will offer you like a thousand bucks into your health savings account by doing something silly like getting your annual physical or doing a wellness test online. Like you do a screening on a computer and you have to do it like once a year for their insurance, but they'll give you like a thousand dollars for doing it. So if your company offers free money in your HSA, once again, take advantage of it. Like you wouldn't turn down a thousand bucks just laying in the street. So like literally all it takes is like going and getting a doctor's appointment, which you should be doing anyway. And it's free, like get it done. Right. So Definitely start investing there. And then, you know, I'm just a big believer in keeping it simple. Low cost index funds, you invest in the total stock market. I'm not a fan of these people like you see on Robinhood trading stocks. Like that's gambling. Gambling's fun, but you shouldn't be doing it with like your retirement SDAG. Um, you know, real investing isn't sexy and exciting. Like it is literally putting money in an account and watching it grow over time. And I'll tell you the one thing that studies have shown over and over and over again is that the number one driver of wealth before you're in your 40s is just how much you can put into the account. It has nothing to do with your investment returns, has nothing to do what you invest in. It's literally just how much money you can get into your savings account before you're 40 will determine your wealth in the future. Interesting. Interesting. So if you only have, if you only have 10,000 bucks and even if you're compounding it 10%, 15, 20% a year, it doesn't make a difference. You need to be putting in 10,000 bucks every single year and watching it compound, right? It's all on how much you can put into the account. Right. Right. And you mentioned, so, so low cost index funds. So, so my understanding of an index funds is that sort of like a, sort of a collection of different, um, stocks, correct? Right. So why I love index funds is an index is basically a list of however many stocks. A common one you hear all the time is the S&P 500, right? So it is a list of the 500 biggest companies in America. Well, the biggest stocks in America, right? 
So when you buy the S&P 500, you're buying a tiny, tiny little portion of all 500 stocks. Why this is a really good strategy is because you are basically betting on the economy or the world economy really these days. And the upside is that as the economy grows, like you get to reap that growth. The safe side is that as individual companies fail, which they inevitably will, they just drop out of the index. And so you lose a little tiny, tiny bit of your money, but then the company, the list keeper, whoever the S&P, Standard & Poor's, takes, let's say one of them falls out, well, company 501 just slides right in and takes their place. And so like you're still invested in the whole index and in the whole economy. And that's why I love index fund investing. You're not trying to pick the winners and losers. It's not like, is cruise lines gonna come back or is Tesla gonna you know, take over the whole world, like it could. And then, you know, someone's going to hit a home run, but like it also could totally fail and in five years be bankrupt. Like, you know, even big companies like GM and them go bankrupt. Like you think Tesla doesn't have that opportunity. But then if you invest in literally every company in America, the only way you're losing is if like the whole entire economy collapses for decades to come in which case you also have bigger problems to worry about than what was in your S&P 500 fund. <laughs> there's bigger, bigger issues to deal with. Right, right, right. And do you have, do you have like a set sort of like percentage or, or do experts recommend like a set percentage of like say the, the income that you come, that you have coming in, like what, you know, how much should you just, you know, have in the bank account? How much should you be putting in index fund? Well, you should put as much in as you possibly can. I like to say things like save until it hurts. Like you should be feeling some type of emotional pain early on with how much you're putting away and feeling like, oh my God, this is too much. That's the amount that you should be putting in there. I will tell you some cool strategies, things too. Like if you're in your 20s, if you can save 50% of your income or more from your time you're 22 to 35, you're done. Like you don't have to work again. Like, it's just things like that. Like, those are kind of motivating to me. Like, if you can do it like 10 years, basically, of saving half your income, there's a really high probability that you're just financially set for life. So it sounds like a pretty good bet to me. <laughs> right? But like, but it's also like, how can I get to 50%? And so to me, I also like, well, instead of trying to like cut expenses, what if, like, let's say you make, you know, $50,000 a year and you're trying to save $25,000 a year. Well, what if you could earn an extra thousand bucks a month? Now you're, you've earned 12,000, which can go to that $25,000 goal. And now you're only trying to save 12,000, 13,000 bucks this year. Then if you get like a thousand bucks into your HSA, now you're down to 12,000. Then you get a 5%, you know, HS or a 401k match. Now you're down to 7,000 that you're trying to save. So now we're talking much more manageable levels. But when you rewind and look at your whole year, you're like, man, I actually put away 25,000 bucks through these various tips and tricks. Right, right. Um, well, Robert, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Um, this has been a very enlightening conversation for me and probably uh, going to do a lot more research on some of these specific subjects after, <laughs> after we get off. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, uh, have there been any like major changes kind of in your recommendations uh, as far as like investing or, or loan repayment um, just in, like, you know, with what's going on in the world with COVID? Has, has that dramatically changed anything specifically 
Yeah, when it comes to your student loans, one of the big changes with COVID, which has never happened before in history, is that all federal student loan payments are paused. Zero percent interest and zero payments due until December 31st, uh, which is just game changing. So I'm a huge believer in never giving the government a single dime more than they're ever supposed to get from you. So even if you could afford these payments, save that money, and then you could put a lump sum towards it in January, like, you know, when your first payments do, and that could be a great approach. But on the flip side, if you're going for loan forgiveness, like never give the government any more money. Like, and so you should be taking this time, making sure you're filling out your paperwork appropriately and just enjoying it, saving that, maybe putting that money towards other debts. I don't know, but that's been the big one. Uh, a lot of talk about student loan forgiveness, you know, coming up in, in the political sphere. I wouldn't count on it. If anyone out there is looking for like a blanket program that's different than what we have today, like $10,000 towards your loans or, you know, Joe Biden has said like anyone that goes to a, a state school and makes, you know, less than $125,000 a year or historically black college or university, I wouldn't count on those blanket loan forgiveness programs. Now, if you've been saving a lump sum and you're like on the fence about whether I dump it towards my loans or don't, well, I would make your minimum payments for the first few months of next year and see what happens in the political space. You know, making an extra three or four months of payments uh, in the hopes that something happens with loan forgiveness isn't going to make or break the bank in the long run. Um, but like for most people, I think don't count on any kind of blanket loan forgiveness. Uh, sadly, is is always we all would like to see it. There's a lot of programs today. Fifty percent of every student loan borrower qualifies for something as it stands right now with no changes to law. So educate yourself on what you could be eligible for and what it takes to get it. Because I'll tell you, that's the number one reason why people don't get student loan forgiveness is they don't know the program exists and or they're not filling out the paperwork appropriately to qualify. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, uh, Robert, if, if people want to learn more about your work, um, your company, um, where would you direct them to? Yeah, so if you want to read more about any of this stuff we just talked about, go to thecollegeinvestor.com. If you like to listen to podcasts, like I'm sure you do because you're listening to this show, we have the College Investor Audio Show on your favorite podcast platform. Awesome. It, with that, do you, do you, so you interview, are you just the one talking or are you interviewing other kind of financial experts? Yep. So it's just our written blog post form or our content in audio format. Oh, nice. So um, really just tailoring it to people that want to listen versus people that want to read. So I personally am a reader, but I'm not everybody. And uh, a lot of people like to listen to these shows as they're going to work or however they want to consume hey, their content. You could, you could be doing it as your side hustling, driving for Uber, or doing DoorDashes, right? You could Heck be yeah. Taking it. Totally. Right on. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show, um, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit, and you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, just about everywhere else podcasts that you can find audio podcasts. And we're also launching uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit Premium, which you can find at uh, patreon.com slash Roscoe's Wetsuit. More details to come about that soon. Robert, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. Really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely.